G'day listeners, welcome to the Braintainment Podcast. My name's Liam O'Donnell and this show will, we hope, truly educate and entertain you with a mission to do a couple of things. Firstly, to blend the world of personal development with pop culture and making the conversation around self-improvement, philosophy, things of that nature far more sexy and more impactful for the masses. One way we do that is through these conversations, either with just myself or with some incredible people that will feature on the show from a wide variety of worlds such as neuroscience, health and fitness, philosophy, business, sports, leadership, and even the entertainment space, which will be very exciting. The second part of our mission is to raise $1 million towards brain injury recovery and brain research, which is very dear to my heart. You can hear more about that on our social channels. In recent years, I've become obsessed with the idea of learning. And not only has this had real world benefits like skill acquisition, and a far more powerful approach to life, but I've bloody loved the process. And my hope with this show is to do the same for you, to add real value, but to help you fall in love with learning again and have a lot of fun along the way. So for now, subscribe and enjoy the show. Hello, folks. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, Today, we've got another special guest who's been kind enough to give us their time and join us, Dr. Frank Cahill, and we're going to be talking all things sleep today, which I'm very excited about, arguably the most important aspect of our well-being and often the most elusive to get right. That's certainly been the case um, for myself anyway. So I know for certain that a lot of people listening today will um, will get a tremendous amount of value. So with that said, welcome, Frank. Thanks, Liam. Mate, you just sit tight for a second uh, while I give the listeners uh, a little bit of an intro, um, really just a bit of context as to who you are and why you might be able to help share some important insights today uh, with us around the world of sleep. Uh, Dr. Cahill is a clinical and counselling psychologist. He specialises in treating people suffering from insomnia. He's a member of the Australian Psychological Society, the College of Clinical Psychologists and the Australasian Sleep Association. Originally trained as a counselling psychologist, he now has over 20 years experience, if I'm not mistaken, um, working with people, couples and families He's, uh, he's also been trained as a cognitive behavioral therapist, um, schema therapist, and EMDR therapist. He's had many years of experience helping people overcome anxiety, depression, stress, phobias, trauma, uh, and even relationship issues. And over the years, he's developed a real passion for helping people improve their sleep. Uh, he's got a lot of success stories, and he's very equipped to be sharing some thoughts with us today. He's also a great guy, a fantastic bloke. I've connected with him personally, very approachable. And um, more than most seems to really get the problem that people have when it comes to uh, to not getting enough sleep. So, Good on Frank, you, Liam. Thanks for that intro. That was great. <laughs> was great. Got, got a I'm big glad. smile on my face. Anyway. Good, mate. Well, that was my intention. Um, yeah, like, like I said, I've connected with you and you were super helpful and I know you're very knowledgeable in this space. I want to start with the basics yeah, sure. uh, to kind of set the scene for, the, for today and then we'll dive into some deeper stuff. Yeah. Tell us a bit about why sleep is so important and what impact does it have on our, the quality of our lives? Well, sleep is a restorative process, as we all know. So most people will attest to how they feel after a bad night's sleep, how they're functioning the next day. So we know that sleep um, plays a big role in our capacity to repair our body. So it helps with the, uh, our memory and learning throughout the night. So a good night's sleep helps um, process and consolidate um, information and our learning process. Um, it also helps um, the immune system. Uh, we know that, so it creates a balance in our metabolism, sort of balancing insulin and glucose. 
You can also regulate our appetite um, through sleep. We often lose good quality sleep. We, um, it's a process of losing weight as well. So it controls our weight, helps lower our blood pressure, um, improves our heart function. So it has a lot of kind of um, functions that actually help restore the body during that period of time. The bit I love the most about it is that it also um, restores the emotional part of our system. Um, and this is particularly occurs during REM sleep. So during REM, which is where we do a lot of our dreaming, um, as well as help consolidating information from the day before, it actually helps regulate our emotions. So all this sort of um, stuff that you had to deal with from the day before gets processed during REM and uh, helps us uh, wake up refreshed and read emotionally to deal with the next day. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, you hit the nail on the head there pretty early. I think people can relate to it. What it feels like when we have a bad night's sleep and just how how different it can be when you do sleep well. You know, you feel mm. like yourself, you can, you can attack the day. Um, what, what do you find are some of the common themes or complaints that people present themselves with when they, when they come to see you? Is there kind of a, a short list of, of symptoms or ailments or complaints that um, people share with you? Yeah, I, I guess you could look at insomnia broken up into three parts. Uh, there are those that present with what we call sleep onset insomnia. So that's difficulty falling asleep. And uh, people uh, with this particular condition often present with uh, extreme anxiety about will, will, whether they'll fall asleep tonight or not. Uh, the second class of um, or presentations that I see around sleep is a thing called sleep maintenance insomnia. <clears throat> Excuse me. These are people who are actually are able to fall asleep, but then they wake in the middle of the night, probably about 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock, and they're up for a couple of hours you know, and often wandering around the house, um, shaking their fist at the world, <laughs> or watching TV or playing on their Been phones there. or whatever, or doing Sudokus or crosswords. And then they fall back to sleep around about, say, four or five, and then they've got to get up for the day around six or seven. So that's what we call middle insomnia. Um, and that's very frequent. We see that a lot with the, um, I see that a lot with people around uh, probably 30 plus, 30, 40, and beyond. Um, sleep onset insomnia, I see a lot, that a lot with younger populations. And then we have um, the third presentation, which is a thing called uh, um, early morning waking. And that's where people can fall asleep. They sleep solidly for about four or five hours and they wake around three or four in the morning and they struggle to go back to sleep. And the individuals that tend to present with that um, sleeping condition um, are often either... Uh, uh, presenting with depression. So with people who are depressed, we see this early morning waking happening quite a lot. So the treatment is around their depression as well as their sleep. Or um, they just wake with a very busy mind and it's often a reflection of uh, the stress that they might be dealing with or the busyness that they have in their lives. They wake about 3 or 4 in the morning and their mind just switches on. They just go ping and they can't switch it off. Um, so they're the three major presentations that I deal with and each of them required very different um, treatment approaches. Yeah, I can imagine. Mate, you touched on it a little bit there, but um, outside of things like anxiety and depression and and, um, and and other kind of mental challenges, I suppose, or psychological issues, are there some main culprits, uh, culprits that you see for causing poor sleep, whether it's poor habits, you know, behaviours, um, things that people are or aren't doing before they go to bed? Um, again, is there a bit of a short list of things that you find are pretty common with where people go wrong that they potentially have a lot of control over? Yeah, that's a good question. I guess it's kind of good to look at two factors, one of precipitating factors and perpetuating factors. So 
Precipitating factors are things that just set off a, uh, a sequence of poor sleep for a few nights. And that might be stress in a job. It could be difficulty in a relationship. It could be something on your mind. It could be sometimes a baby coming to the house for the first time. So these are precipitating events that sort of set off, you know, periods of poor sleep. Usually when those events get sorted out, um, in most cases, sleep resolves or goes back to what it was before. But sometimes it uh, it doesn't, and then it develops in what we call um, chronic insomnia. And uh, the reason why that is, is that people start to develop certain patterns of behavior that perpetuate the insomnia. So this is a whole class of kind of behaviors that people do. And it's kind of interesting, and I'll get onto that in a moment, but when I'm treating somebody um, for insomnia, I'm not actually looking to get them to sleep, giving them tips to get to sleep. I'm really focusing on the perpetuating factors, the things that they're doing that are stopping them from falling asleep, which is a very different approach. Um, and so some of the things that fall into that category of perpetuating factors are going to bed too early uh, to try and get maximising opportunity of falling asleep. And what that ends up doing is you end up lying in bed for longer and getting more frustrated, and that sets off your anxiety. It's lying in bed for long periods, trying to get to sleep. Um, in the middle of the night if you wake. It's um, waking up using a lot of electronics in the middle of the night, um, so getting a lot of bright light exposure. Um, it's things like napping during the day to catch up on a bad night's sleep. It's things like uh, using alcohol at night to help you sleep. Um, and then we get into the area of uh, sleeping medication, which is um, uh, initially quite good, but then it sort of perpetuates where it becomes a problem and it becomes less effective. Um, there's a whole range of different things that people do to try and kind of take greater control over their sleep. But the, the interesting, thing about, interesting thing about sleep is it doesn't respond to control. The more you control it, the worse it gets. Um, so, um, yeah, there's, oh, doing meditation in bed is a classic. Um, now, I'm, I'm all for meditation, but when you're doing it in bed to help you get to sleep, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And uh, after a while, people... Um, you know, they do their medication, meditation, they do their uh, progressive muscle relaxation and it works sometimes, but eventually they say, oh, bugger, that didn't work. And then, and then they get a sense of failure because nothing they do kind of works. So these are what we call perpetuating factors. And uh, the work that I do is really kind of uh, forensically going through a person's current situation with their sleep and really trying to detect what those perpetuating factors are and then sort of meticulously removing them and then uh, getting into the, uh, the client's head to uh, make a shift from trying to control sleep to sort of going with it. Um, but generally, that's, they're, they're the major things we kind of look for when we're treating insomnia. Yeah, that's great. Just to follow on that, um, that train of thought, Frank, um, something I found helpful, well, look, I, <laughs> I, I was guilty of trying to meditate in bed and, and doing everything I possibly could under the sun. Um, every book, every blog, and applying it to this four-hour routine, and it just it, it didn't seem to work for an extended period of time. I found uh, I shifted my meditation process, which I'm personally into, into the afternoon, and then just kind of that led into a relaxing evening, um, and then kind of had more of a relaxed approach to bed, and that, funnily enough, improved my sleep. Mm. Do you find, or how do people find the balance, I suppose, between prioritizing? their sleep and, you know, and doing all the right things versus like you kind of touched on there, overthinking it. Is there a balance and how do people sort of go about it? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I think in terms of prioritising your sleep, it's it's making sure you're doing all the right things. So um, when we talk about sleep hygiene, it's, sleep hygiene's got some good things that are, help, that are very helpful for us and they're making sure that we have a good wind down period before we go to bed, 
If you're going to do any meditation, um, yeah, I like doing it in the, during the day because it actually helps um, slow your pace throughout the day and reduces your cortisol levels at night. Because if you, you're hammering away for the whole day um, and uh, we're feeling really rushed, by the time you get into bed at night, your cortisol levels remain pretty high and that can interrupt your ability to fall asleep. So doing meditation during the day, pacing yourself during the day can also help as you come into the evening to be a lot more relaxed, having a good wind down time before you go to bed. Um, going to bed when you feel it's about right for you. Um, so whatever, keeping a regular bedtime it can be quite useful. And if that's that's not possible, then try to keep a regular wake-up time. So you do some very basic things. And, of course, watch out for basic things like caffeine. If you drink too much coffee during the day, um, reduce that as best you can. Um, alcohol um, is um, uh, too much alcohol at night. We know that kind of affects our quality of our sleep. So being mindful of all the things that we know can really affect our sleep to look after it, to give yourself the best opportunity to sleep. So, um, yeah, but at the same time, you can be overprotective about your sleep. And this is where I think it goes south. Um, and this is where sleep hygiene can, in one sense, can be a very good friend for us to actually prepare us for sleep. But I've seen people use sleep hygiene as a protective factor where it becomes, puts pressure on their sleep. And by that, I mean they make sure they turn all their screens off by about 8 o'clock. They don't watch any television because they've, they've heard everything they've read about screens, you know, from 8 o'clock onwards. They read, they do the meditation, they do a gratitude diary. They make sure they're in bed at a certain time. Um, I had one woman I was treating once that refused to say goodnight to her family because she feared that that would jinx her ability to fall asleep. So they engage in all these highly protective behaviours and they become like uh, uh, rigid rituals leading into bed. And what that actually does, it actually puts more pressure on them when they get to bed because they think I've done everything I'm supposed to do now. Now I should be able to fall asleep. I've you know, done all my sleep hygiene. And, of course, they're lying there, you know, wise and wide awake and uh, getting more and more frustrated and hence that sense of failure comes in. So I think you're right. There really does need to be a balance in there. Um, but the more you try to control sleep, the more protective you become of it, uh, the more it does not respond, the more it becomes uh, more elusive and the worse it gets. So there is a quite a balance here. So I, when, when I'm working with people, there are basically two things I try to get them to focus on or two principles I drive home. And the first one is stop trying to get to sleep. And the second one is stop worrying about not sleeping. And if people can get their heads around that, then they'll sleep. They'll sleep because the body has a natural tendency or a natural drive that builds over a 24-hour period and um, we are part of our circadian rhythm, which puts pressure on us um, and uh, causes us to sleep. Yeah. Frank, there's lots in there. That's fantastic. And I want to unpack a lot of that, um, which we'll get to. Um, now, I just want to bring up something. Your business, your business, if I'm not mistaken, is Sleep with Confidence. I think that's what it's called. Um, that's actually what drew me to you in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, I think people listening... Uh, that's probably what they're after the most is that confidence. And you touched on it there a bit as well, is that confidence that they will fall asleep and, and find that balance of not overthinking it. Mm -hmm. Have you found that um, the people that you work with have been able to regain that sense of confidence that, hey, uh, I am going to fall asleep, I am going to be rejuvenated and kind of alleviated as this like um, monkey on their shoulder, I suppose. Uh, have you found that people have been able to have a lot of success um, over time? Yeah, I have actually. Um, I, I use a process called CBTI for insomnia, which is cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia. It's very, very useful in terms of um, strategies for helping people manage their sleep. 
but building confidence, it was interesting. I named that's the reason why I named the business Sleep with Confidence because when I started out seeing clients who couldn't sleep or treating insomnia, the first thing I noticed they'd lost their confidence and they felt like a failure because they've tried everything and picked up every strategy from every internet site to actually help them sleep. So they actually lost it. Uh, once you kind of unpack it and get them to um, really understand the concept of not trying to control sleep, um, they uh, after a while they become a little bit more relaxed about it and their confidence builds as they start sleeping better and better. It's a slow process. It's a little bit like uh, being bitten by the backyard dog. <laughs> if you get bitten once, you kind of lose your confidence about going in the backyard. <laughs> and and I've got to tell you, and if it does it twice and three times, you get a little bit nervous and most people just wouldn't go in the backyard with that dog. But if you use that analogy with bed, you've got to go to bed every night. So you've got to go through that backyard and face the dog. Um, and uh, it's about building the relationship with the dog, basically. That's the best way to describe it. That's one of the better, but one of the better analogies I've um, I've come across. So I like that. I want to steal that, Frank. You mentioned earlier about caffeine and alcohol, and I know a lot of people listening probably uh, enjoy both. You know, a cup of Joe in the morning or afternoon, and, and maybe a wine at night, or or a few more on the weekend. Um, let's let's talk about that a little bit because uh, I think it'd be really relevant. So, firstly, just on caffeine. Um, could you expand a bit more on your thoughts around it? Is it bad? Is it okay? Is there too much? How do you find the right balance? Yeah, good, good question. Uh, there are some people like my wife can take have a cup of coffee before she goes to bed at night and she sleeps like a log. So mm. some people can drink caffeine right up to bedtime and it doesn't affect them. There's some, there's some gene or um, some sort of um, um, thing that people, capacity that people have to actually process caffeine without it affecting them. Um, for others, it, they can be a lot more sensitive to caffeine and it does affect their sleep. So we know that caffeine affects the quality of our sleep if there's too much or we have a low tolerance towards it. Uh, generally for most people, one or two coffees in the morning, I don't see as a major issue. Uh, where I'm, I'm working with somebody who wakes a lot during the night or has trouble falling asleep, I usually ask, uh, work out how much caffeine they're taking. And if they're taking more than one or two, in the morning, and I, I see people are taking up to six to eight a, a day. Um, and it makes kind of sense because if they're not sleeping well, they're going to want a, some stimulants to keep them going during the day. Um, so I can understand why people would increase their uh, intake of caffeine to actually help uh, function during the day after a bad night's sleep. But, of course, it, it becomes, you know, a, a slippery slope. So generally, uh, if a person's not sleeping well and they're drinking more than one or two cups a day, I ask them just to back off. And uh, just to experiment, see if it makes a difference to the quality of their sleep. I can remember I had a, a, a 77-year-old woman I was treating once, um, and she was waking a lot during the night. And she said, um, I said, do, do you have, um, do you drink coffee? And she said, oh, no, no, no I don't, don't touch coffee. And I said, well, <laughs> what about tea? And she said, oh, yes, I like my tea. And I said, how many cups of tea are you having? He said, oh, about seven or eight. And um, I thought, oh, my God. Um, that's a lot. So I got her to cut down on her uh, cups of tea and she was sleeping like a baby. So it can make a significant difference. So for people out there, if you're not sleeping well, just consider uh, how much caffeine you're taking. Generally, it's not good to take it at night, but a couple in the morning, I wouldn't, I wouldn't deprive anybody of that. It's, um, it's a part of our lives and usually it doesn't agree. make a major difference. Yeah. Uh, alcohol is an interesting one. Um, a lot of people have one or two at night uh, over their dinner. Generally, doesn't affect um, your your sleep. It's just when you get over your limit, and everyone has their limit. It might be three, it might be four. 
Um, but generally what happens with alcohol is that it, um, uh, as the uh, thing takes for one standard drink, it takes about an hour for the liver to break it down. So if you're having too many, what can actually happen during the night, you often, and those of you who have actually had uh, a skin full and then try to get a good night's sleep, uh, most people will experience very light sleep or fractured sleep throughout the night. And that's basically what's happening is the liver's breaking down the alcohol and it's increasing your body temperature as it does that. So you often get uh, pretty ordinary sleep uh, in most cases. Um, it, alcohol is also a slippery slope. I see a lot of people that use alcohol to actually um, as a sleep aid and they'll drink, you know, um, either a couple of scotches or they might have um, a couple of glasses of wine uh, to help them fall asleep. Or they'll even wake. I've had clients that'll even wake in the middle of the night and take a couple of glasses of wine to help them get back to sleep. So that's a, that's a slippery slope as well. So um, yeah, enjoy your caffeine, enjoy your alcohol, but do it in moderation. Yeah, well said. I do find that um, alcohol is a big one for me. I find uh, one, maybe maybe two glasses of wine, I'm okay. But any more than that, I'm I really find it challenging to fall asleep unless I kind of go to the other extreme of having twenty, which is obviously. Um, you know, you might as well go full bore um, that's a different conversation yeah <laughs> yeah i know i know hey listen it's kind of interesting uh, alcohol generally puts it's really interesting alcohol generally puts people to sleep but it wakes them up during the night but i've mm. seen people that will have alcohol and has the opposite effect it actually makes them more alert for some really reason it's, that's a, it's a depressant that's, that's what i it's find I yeah yeah and it's uh, it's always frustrating because sometimes i want to have maybe you know a couple of quiet beers or and admittedly, I'm not, a, I'm not a massive drinker these days uh, by comparison to maybe five, six years ago, but um, yeah. I want to enjoy a few and, and I find it keeps me up at night, whereas, you know, whether it's um, whoever I'm spending time with, friends, family, they're, uh, they're out like a lot after, after a few drinks. So it's been a bit of a weird one. It's not there, is it, Liam? <laughs> it's not no, fair. it's <laughs> it's not. It's really fair. not. Life's not fair, Liam. <laughs> no, we can no, talk no. about that next time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, Again, uh, conversation for another time. I can yeah. um, I can vent. Uh, just on you, you mentioned there, people you know, whether it's uh, alcohol or other things, self-medicating. Um, I want to talk about sleeping aids. So, yeah. uh, are there some that you would recommend as ideal? What's safe? What isn't? Uh, what are your thoughts around herbal uh, approaches? Could you just maybe share some thoughts on some of the, uh, the whether it's a, a drink or a, or a tablet or a powder? What are some things that people um, generally consume um, to help mm. their sleep? Your thoughts around where they should be or shouldn't be? Yeah, uh, again, this is an interesting one. Um, but look, there's lots of over-the-counter uh, medications that people take, like Restivert, and um, they can get sleepy teas and all sorts of different things that actually people take. Um, the, the range of medications go from um, over-the-counter medications uh, to melatonin, which is at a soft level. Um, it's um, taken before bed, um, and you can get a script from your GP for that, uh, to some very you know serious sleep medications like Mogadon, Seroquel, and so forth, which are all super prescribed. Um, whether you're taking something from over-the-counter, like a sleepy tea, or whether you're taking um, something um, a little bit more heavy, like a Mogadon, um, they fall under the same category that you're trying to control sleep. Now, sleeping pills, uh, don't get me wrong, they have a place. And I have clients that I, um, although that's not my first choice, but if they're really, really struggling and it's affecting their mental health and capacity, then sleeping pills are certainly the way to go to give them a break. So it has, um, it's really, sleeping pills are really designed to um, help break a pattern to enable a person to get back into a sleeping pattern. So they do work. 
Yeah. Trouble is that they can become um, a perpetuating factor for insomnia, meaning that uh, people get to the stage where they believe that they can't fall asleep unless, sorry, um, they can't fall asleep unless they take a medication. So there's a part of the brain that says, if I don't take something, I won't fall asleep. And that's problematic because uh, particularly when you start trying to get people off medication um, and to stop whatever they're taking before they go to bed, there's significant anxiety that you've got to move through because the fear is that if I don't take the medication, I won't sleep. If I don't sleep, I won't be able to function the next day. If I don't function the next day, you know, bad things will happen. So there's this whole kind of catastrophizing thing. So um, generally uh, these medications are useful just to um, break a pattern but after a while, they have to stop. So I would say no more than about three or four days if you're going to take anything. But general rule is I try to get people away from that. That um, And again, it, it comes down to this concept of trying to control sleep, which is, um, which is counterintuitive because sleep does not respond to control. The more you control it, eventually it sort of pushes back. Yeah, yeah well said. You, I, you touched on it a little bit um, in that, Frank, but some of the impacts uh, or the impact that stress has or sleep has, I should say, can be detrimental and can really affect our, our psychological health. Mm. So I know, I know there's a link between poor sleep with anxiety, depression. Mm. Could you share some thoughts around that? I know people listening, particularly at a time like this during um, COVID-19, mm. there's a lot mm. of change, a lot of ambiguity. People are a little bit more anxious potentially. Um, that, can, you know, that can spiral out of control. What's the relationship between sleep and um, some of those mental health issues it's pretty strong there is a strong correlation between the two as i mentioned before you know we talked about perpetuating factors things that, sorry uh, precipitating factors things that sort of set insomnia off uh what people are currently going through at the moment is uh, a good example of a uh, precipitating factor and financial stress is one of the major um, stress factors that australians face and particularly now um so th there's a good reason why the sleep would go off um, and uh, it can, as, as we know, it can um, influence um, our mental health the next day. So we do know that poor sleep can cause depression and anxiety, and we also know that anxiety and depression can actually cause poor sleep. So there's a bi-directional relationship. But um, it's kind of interesting. Um, if we can fix a person's sleep, uh, we often see that depression has, has a big impact on depression. Uh, like in terms of reducing it or help a person cope a little bit more. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there is a very strong relationship between the two. Um, when I'm treating somebody for depression, I look towards the sleep. Um, and uh, if there are problems associated with sleep, I focus on the sleep first, and that often makes a big difference in terms of helping them function. So sleep becomes very, very important. There's no reason why you can't sleep through these difficult times. Um, the major thing here is to watch out for those perpetuating factors that um, we introduce to um, try and control, you know, or make up for a bad night's sleep. Yeah. So just on stress, mm -hmm. um, which you alluded to a little bit there, and obviously with everything happening in the world right now, there's a there's a lot of it. Yeah. What What's actually happening in the body or in the brain? I know at the top you mentioned about cortisol production and, and Having that surplus can be problematic. Could you talk to us a bit about what's going on when we are stressed? Well, cortisol is, is the main stress hormone, and if it remains high throughout the day, it does affect our sleep. But stress can also affect things like uh, concentration during the day, um, decision-making, uh, the quality of decision-making during the day as well. 
Um, and the other thing to stress uh, becomes a major issue in terms of relationships um, and uh, in terms of um, how how we cope with relationships. It's kind of interesting. Um, men and women have different kind of ways in which they respond to stress. So with men, it, they generally take a fight-flight response, which means that they tend to shut down um, and withdraw, as we know. Um, that's our first response. Or take a fight response. And uh, a fight response uh, can come out as anger predominantly. So what we see, with particularly with men during stressful times, is they often um, uh, we often see outbursts of anger and frustration or they just shut down and you get this build-up. Um, with women, they have a tendency of tend and befriend under stress situations. So uh, they've got better coping resources with stress. Um, so what I mean by tend and befriend, uh, under stressful situations, women uh, have a tendency to tend towards um, their children or to their friends or to their family to look after. And the other one is befriend, which is they have a tendency to um, seek out uh, social connections to help them through stressful situations. So um, there is a gender difference between how um, uh, men and women actually respond to stress. Um, and, and I guess it's really important if we just talk about stress at the moment during these difficult times to just remember it's really important to uh, reach out, to talk, uh, particularly for men. And we're seeing a lot of uh, domestic violence occurring at the moment, uh, and that's predominantly due to the, um, the stress that people are actually experiencing. No excuse, but this, this kind of kicks off this fight-flight response that men generally have when they're in stressful situations. So I guess the message out there, if you're experiencing stress um, and that will impact upon your sleep, look at your stress during the day, look at what you can get rid of, um, but also reach out for help is important. And probably friends and family or talking to mates is probably going to be the best thing you can do if you know, it feels if you're not coping. Yeah, I like that. I'm a massive advocate of that, Frank. I'm glad you shared that message. Um, a large part of this podcast and the work that I've try to put out i suppose is to kind of, is to encourage men and women alike to just open up the conversation um be a little bit more vulnerable learn you know optimize their health their their well-being uh, and particularly at a time like this so uh, i'm glad you i'm glad you're on the same page mm. uh, there just to change lanes a little bit sure, i want to talk about circadian rhythms oh, so yeah. um it's something that i've associated with sleep admittedly i don't know a lot about it <laughs> so more than anything it's just a learning opportunity for me and i hope the listeners get some value what are they? What do they mean? Um, and how do we how do we get them right? And if you if you could also share, are there certain things uh, that have an impact? I know, if I'm not mistaken, melatonin uh, in large part what it's doing is affecting the circadian rhythms. I'll let I'll let you share some thoughts around that, but um, I'd love to know what what it's all about. Yeah, well, circadian means um, I think it's Latin or Greek for it means about a day, so it's a 24 hour period, and it's broken up into light and dark. And our body responds to that. So during the light times, um, or at, when things get dark at night, melatonin is released in the brain and from the brain into the bloodstream. And that helps lower our, bo- uh, our body temperature and helps us kind of fall off to sleep. Um, and uh, melatonin rises in, uh, throughout the night as our body temperature starts to drop. And, uh, and then uh, as we come into the morning and we start uh, expo- exposing ourselves to light, melatonin drops away and body temperature increases. And, uh, and cortisol levels increase throughout the day. So it's just a cycle. So a circadian rhythm basically is your body cycle. It sort of indicates when you fall asleep. It indicates when you naturally wake up. It indicates, um, you know, uh, 
body temperature, glucose levels throughout the day, cortisol levels throughout the day, indicates when you're feeling hungry, when you have uh, feel like um, a meal. So it's a timer. It's an internal timer that regulates everything in our body. Now, uh, where this affects sleep is um, most people who have what we call an entrained circadian rhythm, um, basically um, their melatonin starts to release in the brain about two hours before they fall asleep. So if people are falling asleep around about, I don't know, about 11 o'clock, their melatonin is starting to rise in the bloodstream around about uh, 9 o'clock, two hours prior, and uh, they generally fall asleep throughout the night. And then they wake up, their um, their body temperature hits a core uh, minimum core spot around about two hours before they wake up and then the body temperature starts to rise. So uh, if they're naturally waking around about seven, then they um, they start waking through. So that's a, a, what we call a naturally entrained circadian rhythm. Now, not everyone has that. We see shift workers, their circadian rhythms get out of whack a lot uh, and they have trouble falling asleep at the right time at night. Um, I do a lot of work with people who have misaligned circadian rhythms. Um, and they fall into a couple of categories. One is what we call a delayed circadian rhythm or a delayed sleep phase disorder. We have people with um, uh, an advanced sleep phase disorder, which I'll quickly chat about. And the other one is a free-running circadian rhythm disorder. Um, so with delayed circadian rhythm disorder, um, I can see treat a lot of school kids with this one. It starts around about year 10 when... Um, Kids' melatonin levels start to be a little bit more delayed biologically um, and they find that when they um, go to bed about 10, 10 o'clock or so, uh, they're wired. They're just not ready to go to sleep, so they're often on their computers and so forth. And what can actually happen is, is their circadian rhythms can shift, which basically means that they can't initiate sleep till about 2, 3, 4 in the morning and then they just can't wake up for school and they sleep right through to about 11 or 12 or 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, and that's what we call the delayed circadian rhythm. They can sleep well, but they struggle with it. Uh, an advanced um, phase circadian rhythm is uh, we often see this in the older population where they fall asleep around about 6 or 7 in the evening and they wake about 2 o'clock in the morning uh, and they can't get back to sleep. So their, their uh, circadian rhythm is advanced. And the, 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 the other one was a very curious one that I see a lot of is what we call a uh, non-24 circadian rhythm where they basically, um, these I see this a lot with gamers uh, who are up all night and uh, um, basically what happens is their circadian rhythm just uh, advances, that means, or delays, sorry, it delays every two hours every week or so. So they, their sleep cycle goes around the clock. So if they're falling asleep at three in the morning, and waking up at, say, I don't know, two in the afternoon after a couple of days, that then goes to four in the morning to three in the four in the afternoon and so on. They just keep on going around the clock. So that's quite quite severe. Uh, we see it in blind people, but I see it a lot in gamers as well, so we treat that. Um, so generally that's that's the broad picture. Uh, treating these uh, abnormal circadian rhythms, um, there's a specific process we go through, which is very, very effective in bringing it back to an entrained or normal kind of sleep times. Yeah, right. No, that's that's super interesting. To the to the gamers listening, take note. <laughs> <laughs> They're out there. They're out there. I have to read to a few friends of mine. Hey, um, let's talk more on sleep cycles. Yeah. So you touched on REM sleep a little bit at the start. Um, what are the different cycles? What do they mean? Um, what's going on? Well, sleep's broken up into two parts. We've got what we call non-REM and REM. So non-REM takes up about 75% of our sleep throughout the night and REM is about 25%. So non-REM is basically, um, well, let's put it another way, we, when we fall asleep, 
our sleep goes in 90-minute cycles. So uh, in every 90 minutes, we cycle through uh, different stages. So we start up in stage one, which is light sleep. And then as their brain waves drop down, slow down, we move into um, stage two sleep. And then we get into what we call deep sleep, which is um, N3 or stage three sleep. And um, that cycles through, that process generally cycles through um, every 90 minutes. And after every 90 minutes, we come back up to the surface for our first REM period. And then we go down for another sort of 90-minute cycle down through one um, stage one, two, and three, and then we come up for a REM period. Um, so the, uh, that cycling process is very important for um, recovery, uh, body recovery, as we mentioned before, memory consolidation, emotional consolidation, and so forth. Um, some people who have disruptive sleep, um, and if you're having uh, difficulty or you wake up the next morning and you're feeling as if you um, haven't had a good night's sleep, the chances are you probably didn't get a lot of um, uh, slow-wave sleep, which is deep sleep. And uh, that can often happen with if there's a lot of stress going on in your life. So when we talked about COVID-19 and people being very stressed financially, we often see that their sleep is very choppy. So they're having stages one and two throughout the night. They're not getting the deep sleep. Um, People who suffer from a thing called sleep apnea, which is a breathing disorder, also um, uh, their breathing is waking them up um, where they stop breathing for short periods of time. Um, the, um, they have very disruptive sleep. So that's often treated through, you know, other, um, through CPAP machines or seeing a sleep physician. But the role of um, the um, stages of sleep are very, very important um, in terms of uh, helping us recover throughout the night. Yeah, right. Super interesting. Um, Frank, I, I touched on earlier uh, in the intro, your work with CBT. I think you expanded a little bit um, the cognitive behavioural therapy. Could you talk to us a bit more about what that means and how it can help people uh, fall asleep, stay asleep, and ultimately just have a, a better me- mental well-being? Yeah, uh, cognitive behavioural therapy, it's been around for a long, long time. It, it, essentially, it's, um, it's about change, challenging our thinking patterns, unhelpful thinking patterns, because how we think can really influence our emotional response to situations. So, for example, if you look at the COVID-19, a lot of people, some people see a silver lining behind it, some people don't. And how we see a situation really influences our emotional response to it. So cognitive therapy is really about changing the way in which we think about a situation and reframing it in a more you know, useful pattern way, a way of seeing it. When it comes to sleep, um, we, uh, we use a system called cognitive behavioral therapy uh, again and Sleep responds, there are two components that we focus on. One is a behavioral component, the other one's a cognitive component. So when we're treating sleep, the behavioral component, there are basically uh, two major kind of um, tools that we use. One is stimulus control and the other one's sleep restriction. Uh, stimulus control is best used for people who have difficulty falling asleep. That is, they go to bed about 10 or 11 and they're lying in bed for hours and hours and hours trying to get to sleep. And what, what happens is we um, develop a, what we call a, a conditional arousal response after a while where the brain goes, oh, here we go again. I go to bed. I'm going to be awake for hours and hours and hours. So it's like a predictive thing. So to break that up, what we do is we get people out of bed for very short periods of time. Um, so, for example, if um, somebody's falling asleep or having difficulty falling asleep, what I generally get them to do, I say, look, go to sleep at the normal time. But if you find that you're really struggling, um, and um, I use the term getting bent out of shape. Most people know what I mean by that, which is getting frustrated. 
Um, I get people out of bed for about a 10-minute break um, just to sit down in the kitchen, maybe stare at the dog or um, just kind of flip through a magazine. No phones, of course, keep the lights down low. But I, just for 10 minutes, I usually don't wait till they're tired. Um, what I'm looking here for is for them to reset and to drop their body temperature because your body temperature is a really important factor here. Uh, sleep's associated with a fallen body temperature. Now, if you're lying in your bed struggling to get to sleep, one of the first things you'll notice is that your body temperature goes up. So getting out of bed for a 10-minute break just to cool down and reset can be very, very useful. Um, and you might have to repeat that a couple of times to break this conditional arousal response where the brain goes, I go to bed, I don't go to sleep. But if you get out of bed and then you come back into bed and you fall asleep, then the brain goes, oh, okay, I go to bed, I go to sleep. So it helps break that sort of um, sleep onset insomnia. So that's generally the behavioral strategy for people having difficulty falling asleep. For people who kind of wake a lot during the night, we use a thing called sleep restriction. And sleep restriction is where we increase, where we get the person to go to bed much later and get up much earlier. And what that's designed to do is actually designed to increase the sleep pressure. So it means that when they come to bed, they come to bed a lot tighter. They've been up for longer. So the pressure to sleep is stronger, which means that when they do wake during the night, it's a lot easier to fall back to sleep. And in doing that, what we do is we teach people how to wake and then go back to sleep because prior to that, they've forgotten the ability to be able to do that. So uh, generally, they're the two behavioral strategies that we use in cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Um, the uh, the cognitive component is really around um, challenging their belief that they have to have a good night's sleep in order to function the next day or that they'll never sleep again or that if they don't sleep, they'll die from, you know, some horrible disease. So a lot of these kind of um, anxious thoughts often perpetuate the insomnia. So we do a lot of cognitive work about challenging their beliefs about sleep. And just so on that, Frank, you have a list. I kind of approach it in a, in a, in a brief nutshell. Mate, that's fantastic. Oh, so much value in that and, and a lot of takeaways. And I'll get you to, before we wrap up, and you've been really generous with your time, you'd say, which I really appreciate. Unbelievable amount of value uh, for people listening, I'm sure. Um, and I'll get you to share just maybe one or two takeaways that people can work with to improve their sleep um, before we wrap. But just on that, on that uh, challenging thought patterns, I know from memory you often give patients a, a list of a few thoughts just to consider or not necessarily mantras, but... Um, I suppose thoughts is, is probably the right way to look at it, um, to start challenging the way they think. Yeah. Could you share maybe a couple more that that um, that are on that list? I can't recall from memory, but I know I got one myself, and one of them was one of which was, um, you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna die. I'm not going to um, completely fall apart if I don't fall asleep tonight. And I think just resetting um, mm. the right psychology just alleviates some some pressure a little bit. Yeah, no, it's it's a good sheet. I we put it I put it together years ago, and I use it extensively now for um, just dealing with the way in which people think. Look, if um, if your listeners want a copy, if you want to put it on your website, I'll send it to you. It's no drama. But um, uh, so some of the key things on that sheet, I think the major question, the major anxiety that people have in relation to their sleep that keeps them awake is um, uh, first one is will I get to sleep tonight. And uh, the second one is if I don't get a good night's sleep, I won't be able to function the next day. They're probably the two major ones. And those, that thinking in itself can keep you awake um, because uh, the one about um, if I don't get a good night's sleep, I won't be able to function the next day, it's about catastrophizing about your ability to, um, to deal on a bad night's sleep. And that worry sort of keeps you up. So generally what I, on that one, what I say is that, you know, regardless of how much sleep you get tonight, you'll get through the following day and it's a mantra that i use 
And it's true. When I sit down and talk to people and look at their sleep diaries, and these are people worried about their ability to function the next day, I look at uh, a night where they've had a bad night's sleep and I say, how did you function during that day? How did you get through the day? And they go, oh, well, I managed to do it. And I say, what about this this day here, You, you this night? You only got about three hours sleep. How did you get through the day? And they go, well, I don't know. I guess I did. So when we look at people's data, the truth is there staring in the face. They do get through the day. So the more relaxed they are, the better. The interesting thing, though, um, there's another there's another line on that sheet that says resting peacefully is almost as restorative as sleep, mm. which I kind of really like. I love and, that one. What's that? Oh, sorry to interrupt, Frank. I love that. That's something that's stuck with me and I often repeat to myself uh, when I'm struggling to fall asleep and I found it really helpful. Yeah, and you know what, uh, Liam, I, I think the thing I love about that one is that it's an old, you know, you probably heard your grandmother saying that or your mother saying it, but it does a couple of things. One is it um, it stops you from trying to get to sleep. And remember the key principle, stop trying to get to sleep, stop worrying about falling asleep. So when you take on that position if you're not sleeping and you say, you know what, I'm just going to lie here and rest for the night, all of a sudden you stop trying to sleep and then then you're more, more likely to be relaxed. But here's the other thing too, Liam. There's a phenomenon called sleep state misperception which basically um, says that um, even though you're awake, you could be asleep without even realising it. So if you take the position that I'm just going to lie here and rest my body for the night, you often drift off to sleep without even realising it. And there are basically three things will tell you this. One is if pockets of time disappear throughout the night, you're definitely asleep. Uh, The second one is your thinking can become quite bizarre. So you're lying there and all of a sudden thinking about the world and what's going on, all of a sudden you realise you're in the in the jungle chasing lions and tigers what had actually happened is you've actually fallen in through one of these sleep cycles and come out of a REM period which is where we do a lot of our dreaming and um uh and you didn't remember falling asleep you just remember that that was strange thinking actually in actual fact it indicated you'd fallen asleep but you know the biggest one is even though you thought you're awake for most of the night your daytime energy wasn't as bad as you thought so that kind of really points to the fact that you may have been asleep a lot longer so if I was to say if there's any tip for your listeners about managing sleep, uh, first of all, um, go to bed with a focus of resting and drifting. Don't try and go to sleep. And if you're struggling to get to sleep and you're getting frustrated out of bed for a short break, cool down, reset, back into bed and just focus on resting and drifting. And even though you think you're awake, you could be asleep without even realising it. And we know this is true on PSGs, that are sleep studies. People significantly underestimate the amount of sleep that they had during the night. Um, so um, that would be my takeaway on that one. Massive. Thank you, Frank. Uh, like I said, mate, so much value and you clearly know what you're talking about. Where can people connect with you if they want to learn more, if they want to visit you? I know a lot of listeners will probably be Melburnians. Um, if they want to connect with you, what's the easiest way to do so? Well, I'm doing a lot of stuff uh, online at the moment, um, like seeing clients online so I could see anyone from pretty well anywhere in Australia, which is a good thing. Uh, if they want to connect with me online, just go straight to my website, which is sleepwithconfidence.com.au. 